All right, welcome back everyone to another episode of the Robert Channel podcast. We're in uh, beautiful Arecife today on sunny Lanzarote and I'm going to tell you the story on how we got here. How we crossed here to Lanzarote from Portugal, Portimao, a 550 sea mile or a thousand kilometer long for the less nautically inclined amongst you crossing on a Lagoon 50 catamaran that we pulled off in only four days. So a very, very speedy crossing in our opinion. And let's just start with day one. Let's just start with the start of the crossing. In the last two episodes, I have already told you how we arrived at the boat and how we got the boat ready for departure, how we started cooking a lot and checked the weather and checked the mast and got along with the crew. And today we're starting with the actual sailing. So we're leaving. Actually, I have forgotten which weekday it is. We're leaving in the early morning at six o'clock, I think it was around that, super early. So before sunrise, everyone is up, we're ready, we're pumped, we're excited. It's the first big crossing that we're doing. And for Nico, our other crew member, especially because he has a little bit less sailing experience. So we're suiting up, we're sunscreened, everything, even though it's still dark outside, we wear our life jackets. We're ready to get this huge catamaran out of this tiny berth out of this narrow harbor and the captain is at the helm and every one of us has a um, a walkie-talkie a, a microphone and a, I don't know how that's called earbud in your ear and a microphone so that we can we talk we can talk to each other and it looks really it feels like we're helming a super yacht which we are so it feels appropriate the bridge is too far away from us. When we're at the front, we can't hear anything. So now we can hear the captain via the walkie-talkies, which is nice. We're um, on the sides, on the hulls of the boat, managing the fenders, managing the lines. The captain starts the engine. We're pulling out and he cranks up the stereo. Plays a song, I don't know the song, but must be his favorite, on full volume in a harbor that just is waking up with the first light of the day while we're leaving the harbor so that everyone knows we're leaving and that everyone sees him and his big big boat which was kind of fun it felt appropriate somehow to start the crossing this way it felt very yeah it was a very distinct start even with this this show of move of showing off the stereo and the catamaran but it somehow matched the boat and, and the feeling and everything, so it was fine. I was super nervous trying to handle the lines as good as possible, to be a crew as good as possible, to wrap them, coil the lines as tightly and beautifully as I can, as fast as I can. Nearly missed the harbor entrance because I was so focused on my work. Here I ran around a bit filming stuff, so I'm glad that I have a, have a film of that. You can check that out on Instagram as well, it's on there. And that was it. The whole thing took less than five minutes and we're out. We're out on sea. The day just starts, the wind is really nice. We have forecasted between 23 and 28 knots or something, three to four meter waves from the north, the wind from the north, northeast. And we need to go southwest, which is great. But first we need to head on a western course. So not directly towards our target, but 
more out to sea to a western course because we need to avoid a lull in the wind that will develop in uh, the area where we are currently at in a day's time. So we need to anticipate the weather that is going to be and adjust our course accordingly. So that's what we're doing. We're switching off the engine, we're taking up the sails, we're adjusting a course and we're going out. This is the moment where the captain tells us, okay guys, this is the last time you'll have phone access for the next four days, which of course was clear to us. It's clear we're out on the ocean, we don't have phone access. Still, everyone scrambled and took their phones, tried to send a few last messages, downloaded a few podcasts, a bit of music, because you, you don't know, it's four days without, without cell phone access. It, it feels still a bit weird in this super technical world that we're in today to not have phone access at all. And all the entertainment that we get from our smartphones is just gone. Which is a really nice break, but still, a few podcasts downloaded feels well prepared for those long night watches. And at the same time, everyone was watching out for orcas, for killer whales, because in the whole area in front of Portugal, Gibraltar, also Morocco, um, France, up to the Biscay, and I'm not sure if it goes up further, but let's say the whole coastline of uh, the south of France, Spain, Portugal and Morocco, there have been orca attacks on boats, on sailboats especially. And orcas are huge. I mean, they're not, they're not just dolphins, they're whale-sized dolphins. I think they're a member of the dolphin family, I should know. I have to look that up and I will deliver that in the next episode. And what they do is, we don't know why they do it, but what they do is they swim up to the boat and they start playing with the rudder. So they start biting the rudder and bumping into the rudder. And this is, in the very least, very uncomfortable because it really, if you have a rudder that has a tiller, it just hits you in your hands. If you have a rudder then that you have a wheel, that's a bit less bad, but it's a strain on the whole steering system of the boat. Or it might just simply break if your boat is too small because the orcas are, they are powerful. And we don't know why they're doing it. Science, I think, is still milling hypotheses and we might never find out because we can't ask them. But there have been, it has started two, three years ago, so it's a very new phenomenon and it has steadily increased so that nowadays there is lots and lots of attacks. So it's, it's a frequent um, occurrence. Smaller boats below a certain length are not allowed in certain areas in front of the Spanish and Portuguese coast anymore because of the orca attacks. Our captain was nervous as well. We were nervous and excited at the same time because, well, yes, it's dangerous. They can attack the boat. They can make, they can break your rudder so you can't steer anymore. That's a potentially dangerous situation. But on the other hand, imagine us seeing orcas. How cool would that be? It's not our boat. It would be cool, to be honest. Well, don't be. What we did in order to um, fight off the danger of the orcas is we had filled um, beach toys, a huge balloon and a huge um, ring to, to float in, so a floating ring. We had filled with air and had them up on the, on the bridge deck so that in order when the orcas would attack us, we would throw those things in the water in, and hope that the orcas would play with the, with the beach toys and the balls instead of with the boat so they would uh, get distracted which 
feels bad because you're throwing plastic into the ocean. On the other hand, I can also understand that the captain of a $1.5 million vessel doesn't give a shit about a $20 plastic toy in the ocean when that saves his boat. How are you going to, to um, handle such a situation? I have no idea. I'm not the captain of the boat. And at this point, when I'm talking of these toys on the bridge deck, let's talk about the boat. I think I haven't told you about it. I've told you it's a Lagoon 50, it's a huge boat that looks very new, it's very white and very clean and all that, but you cannot imagine yet the layout of the boat. So let's start at the very bottom. It's a catamaran, it has two hulls. In each of these hulls we have the cabins. On the port side hull we have two cabins, we have a front cabin and a aft cabin. Each of those cabins has a freestanding double bed, like a fully sized double bed, an own private bathroom. I, I won't say head because it's a proper bathroom with a separate shower that had, spoiler alert, warm water the whole way. We had hot showers the whole crossing. So it's a very luxurious um, cabin. In the other hull, in the starboard hull, the captain's cabin was, which was across the whole hull. So he had his huge bed, his library area and his bathroom with a proper huge... I mean, we had a proper shower as well, but he had a ginormous shower and a, and a huge bathroom area. So like, a, like an apartment on the sea. If you go up one story from the hulls into the main saloon, you have this beautiful view all around because you're already high above the surface. Maybe the foot is maybe a, like your foot or maybe a meter above the waterline and you have this window that go around you have a 360 degree view of the, the harbor of the sea of the, of the rest of the boat around you we have a fully equipped kitchen on board that I might have already mentioned with um, four gas burners an oven a microwave toaster blender a mixer <laughs> sandwich toaster as well, all the knives and pans that you can need, so everything you need to cook, all there. There is a huge sitting area for maybe eight people without problems. We have a nav station where we have a chart plotter, where we can steer the autopilot, where we can steer the boat, so the engine controls are there. Then there is another kitchen corner on the other side that is just more space for stuff to stand, for cutlery, for food, for whatever. Four fridges, one, two, three, four. Four huge fridges, which were filled with food. Oh no, I'm sorry, five fridges. Four fridges on the inside and one fridge on the outside just for cold drinks. Which brings us to the outside of the boat. So if we leave the saloon area, there is this aft deck area, maybe? like a terrace. Another city for six to eight people easily. Another outdoors cooking station with a sink and an induction plate. Floor area for storing I don't know what, on the side area for storing I don't know what, and to the back of the boat the dinghy. So the tender, the tiny boat that comes with the big boats that you use when you're at anchor to go ashore. Hung up on dinghy davits, so pulled up and two arms behind the boat. So the view out of the boat on the back is dinghy, ocean. So that's the second story of the boat. If we walk around the saloon and go up, 
we come to the bridge. I'm calling it bridge deck, it might be wrong. The bridge deck, the helm station, where the steering wheel is, where you can steer the boat. And this is the third story of the boat. It's again huge. We have this four meter wide or so sofa where we can sit on. So you can sit there easily six maybe people without having without sweating. There is the huge wheel with all the controls. We have a, the chart plotter again. We have again the autopilot, the Windex. Uh, the engine controls again are mirrored from downstairs, so you have to can switch between downstairs and upstairs. There is huge electric winches because the boat is ginormous. You can't handle the lines and the, the sails with normal hand power. It's just too big, so you do everything electrically. By the press of the button, you put the line on a winch, you press the button and up goes your mainsail. Very convenient. Behind this, this sofa area is another play area. Three by three, four by four meters, something around that. Just cushions to hang out, to enjoy the sun. But you can't enjoy the sun there because this whole area also has a hardtop. It has a, like a roof, not, not just a bimini roof out of, out of fabric, but a, a roof roof. The front is a window, proper glass window and all the sides are this tent fabric, see-through tent fabric. So it's completely enclosed, it's out of the wind, very comfortable because sitting out in the wind for hours and hours can be exhausting, but it doesn't feel like you're sitting outside. It doesn't really feel like you're helming a boat out in the elements. It feels more like, I don't know, watching a really big TV of the sea where not much happens somehow. So it's, I'm not decided if I really like that or if I don't like that. It's very luxurious, it's very convenient, everything is great. But it's also maybe a bit too much actually. And this uh, sitting area, this play area is where our orca decoys are lying. Let's finish with the boat. If we look to the front, we see the two hulls again and in the middle the trampoline area with another CT area behind it that is built in, hard top with cushions. Then the trampoline area, we can see the sails, the mast, 27 meters high, the whole thing. So from the top of the helm station, the mast is probably another 23 meters or so, because we're already four meters above the waterline, which makes for great visibility all around. But it also makes for great distance from the actual water. So you, you can hear it, but it's not, you're not feeling close. And what can I think of? Yeah, let's say that's it. That's how the boat looks. Now you can imagine with what a floating condo we're crossing, in which luxury, and I hope you're jealous at home. I mean, it's not our boat, we're just crew, but still, read them and weep. So we're up there, we have our Orca, Orca decoys. We're on a west wind course, which puts us um, actually sideways, not a west wind course, the wind comes from northeast but we are facing westwards and the wind comes sideways and confused the wind comes on a broad reach but the waves come sideways because they come from the north and this makes it quite uncomfortable the catamaran doesn't move doesn't heal that much as a mono hull but it just kind of shakes in all four directions so it goes side to side and it also goes back to front which it's weird, you're on a very unstable platform. It doesn't move to like 30 degrees healing or so, but maybe 15 degrees in all directions and very quickly so, because it's lighter than a monohull. And um, 
moves in four directions instead of just two. A monohull will just lean like that, maybe go back in front a little bit or lean like that, but yeah. And what they do, they slam terribly. We have the waves from the side, which means that every now and then you get this BAM when a wave hits the bridge deck from underneath. There is not enough clearance. Those things aren't made for, for fast sailing or for sailing in rougher conditions, if we can call this rougher conditions already. They're more made for being comfortable at anchor. You heard me talking about how, how luxurious they are. So every now and then a huge wave or a rogue wave will hit either the side of the boat or especially also from underneath if we're hitting them at the wrong angle and the whole boat shakes, everything shakes, everything sounds, the whole structure transmits this noise and it's a bit unnerving because you have to trust this boat not to fall apart. It's, it's a loud bang, it's a proper bang. So yeah, it's a bit unnerving. The whole boat creaks anyway, everything is moving a bit, little bit, everything is flexing a little bit, creaking a little bit. It's made from fiberglass, so the structure isn't solid, solid, but it, it, it can bend a bit. And then with these wave slams, not what I would call comfortable, especially at night, you're in your cabin and you're like inside a bell. It just goes boom every now and then and you're awake and hoping that the boat doesn't sink. It didn't sink, we're here. Everything went well, but that is how it felt a little bit. And well, from that on, we're just sailing, sailing, sailing. Not very much is happening. We're having lasagna for dinner that we have prepared. You heard in the last episode, we have prepared a lot of lasagna and potato soup and boiled eggs and everything. So the whole day is basically doing nothing, eating snacks and compartmentalized by meals and we're having lasagna for dinner and we're discussing who gets which which who gets which watch ah tongue breaker here so who has to helm the boat and watch the boat overnight because during the day not necessary we're all awake we're present we're here we can see what happens around us but at night we need someone that is on watch someone whose purpose it is to keep the boat safe while all the others are sleeping soundly. And we're four people, but the captain wants to be present on the first night in all watches, which means three people can do the watches from eight to eight. So one watch is from eight to 12, then the graveyard shift from 12 to four, and then another one in the morning from four to eight o'clock. And we're discussing a bit back and forth. No one wants the graveyard shift. We're deciding and I get the graveyard shift. It's okay. Which means that straight after dinner I'm heading to bed because now I have less than four hours of sleep. Then I have to wake up, be four hours in the helm station and then I can go back to bed again. So we're having lasagna and I'm going to bed in my very luxurious, very comfortable and very loud cabin. Because again, every couple of minutes the whole thing goes boom and shakes. So I'm sleeping actually not too bad. It's comfortable. I'm, I'm trusting the boat. So I don't know why I'm trusting the boat, but I'm trusting the boat. So I'm sleeping. I wake up, I have an alarm. I get dressed for night shift, which means, of course, uh, Life West. The Life Wests have an, um, an AIS transponder. They have an EPIRB. 
they have a laser to point, they have a whistle, they have a light, so they're, they're good, we're safe. I get everything ready, I get my, my um, podcast ready, I get a drink ready, and I go up to the bridge. Nico is on watch, he briefs me what has happened, apparently nothing did, which isn't super surprising because nothing happened during the day as well, so it might as well nothing be happening during the night. Rolf is there on the play area sleeping, having a snooze. Rolf is our captain. And um, Nico briefs me that it's not much going on. It's a bit more windy than before. So we're in an area of 25, 26 knots. We might have to reef at one point. They didn't reef so far. Reefing at night is a bit more challenging because everything at night is a bit more challenging. And Nico um, says, I should watch out for the moon because it's beautiful. And then he heads off. So I heed his advice and I sit on the stairs that lead up to the bridge, not to the bridge itself because it's inside, so a little bit outside. And the moon is, the moon is beautiful. It's not super high up in the sky yet, but there's no clouds. It's just this nearly full moon, very bright, very silvery, and it just lights up the whole strip of sea from the moon to the boat becomes this silver and black moving glittering dreamscape monochrome no colors just silver and black but it looks fascinating it's not much happening there but it's always something happening some wave some movement i don't know hard to describe but looks very beautiful very peaceful very meditative as well and i can't just sit there and dream out and, and phase out all the time but i need to do something i'm on watch i need to keep the boat safe i need to be to keep the crew safe and we're doing that by watching the ais transponder so we have a the ais not only transponder we have an ais receiver ais is a um, automatic information system that most boats have, at least most big boats have, all big boats have to have it. Most of them have it switched on. For smaller sailboats, it's not mandatory, if I'm correct, but many still do. And what it does, it simply it transmits a signal with the information of the boat, which means identity, um, size, speed, and direction. And the latter two are very important. So we know where the boat is and we know where it is heading and how fast. And from this information and the information that we have, because how fast and where we are going, we can actually then calculate if this boat is coming close to us and if it's likely to hit us. So it's a very handy system when in a dark night there is no lights on the sea except the moon today. You can't see boats very well, but on the AIS you can actually spot them and know which of them will probably pass you with a, with a large, um, large berth, with a large um, distance, and which of them will be much closer and that you need then to watch closely with your own eyes as well. Not all boats have the AIS, so you need to be alert for the non-AIS boats as well. Every boat should have their lights switched on at night. The, depending on the boats, white top lights and green and red lights on the sides, white in the, in the stern, Depends a bit if you're a sailboat, if you're a motorboat, how big you are and so on. But there should be some lights visible so that it's easier to spot the boats at night. But still, it's very, very difficult because your horizon is huge. It's 360 degrees of dark, dark water. 
And the lights aren't necessarily super bright. And if they're not high up and we have lots of wave like we have tonight, they don't show up until they're very close. And sometimes you're like, whoa, shit, there's a boat that is, wasn't there before. Of course it was, but you haven't seen it. Can you check on the AS and it will give you a berth of three miles or so. No problem, easy peasy, but it's a bit like fishing. It's very relaxing. Not much happens for a long time, but you need to be alert all the time because you need to, to be aware of what's going on around you. And that's how my night watch goes. Not much is happening. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. The wind keeps increasing a bit. And it keeps increasing too much actually. So I'm waking up the captain and we're deciding to reef. Because even though reefing at night is a bit iffy, there's no point in sailing with too much sail up at night, especially. So we're reefing. We're reefing down the main to... can't remember which one it was. First, second reef. I think it was second reef. And we're reefing down the Genoa as well, which is on a roller furning. Very simple, just pull it in a little bit so that the boat is then safe to sail again. And while we're doing that, there's so many lines to handle. Some lines don't get handled that should have gotten handled. It's my first time reefing the boat, of course. And something gets entangled, so we can't get the reef set properly. We're halfway between not reefed and reefed now and the sail isn't trimmed right, it's not set right and it's stuck. That sucks. And the captain tells us so. He's a very vocal man in terms of when things go wrong. Not in a, not in a mean way. In hindsight in a very funny way, but in the moment very vocal. So he needs to climb out and go and shake, the, shake out the, the reefing line that is somehow stuck. Again, we're at night, the wind is howling because it has just increased. It's now 28 knots and more. And we have still these three to four meter waves that are banging and slamming the boat. It's not comfortable. And now the thing comes that this boat is very high. We are, um, we are four meters over the water surface and that's just us. And the main, the main boom starts higher because it's on top of our heads. So he needs to go up there as well, which means that with the shaking boat, there's so much more movement. But we manage, we get the reef out and um, Kira comes up. It's her shift now, she has pulled the last straw of the last, um, of the last shift. She sees the whole action of reefing, gets immediately in the mood of being on a boat where something needs to be done, pumped and ready for her night shift. I go to bed and in the next morning I can hear that absolutely nothing has happened during her night shift as well. So sailing is a lot of, a lot of nothing happening for long terms, for long times. What I did forget to tell you is that the boat looks like a spaceship at night because we have this, when I was talking about the bridge, we have the chart plotter behind the wheel. It's a huge chart plotter, like a small TV, where the map is plotted. So the chart, the nautical map is plotted. At night, you also plot the AIS signal on top of that. And again, on top of that, you plot the radar because the boat has a radar. Radar is that thing that you know from the, the um, submarine movies that goes beep, beep. No, that's sonar actually, but it works, it works similarly. You send out a radio wave and 
you count how long it takes until the radio wave comes back. And then you know the angle, so the bearing, and also the distance of the object that you have pinged with the, with the radar. Not with the sonar, with the radar. And that is on top then as well. We flip the colors so that the background isn't white anymore. So you have this black screen with these tiny triangles that are the AIS signals of the boat. And then with these um, colored splashes, these green colored splashes that are the radar reflections of the boats and sometimes of waves, of higher waves as well. And in theory, of course, of other objects that would be in the water or of the shoreline of, of lighthouses, whatever. There's nothing here of that, but you get the idea. That together with the information on the boat, speed, angle, um, angle of the autopilot, so on, it makes it look like a spaceship, makes it feel like a spaceship. Because outside you look out of the window, it's darkness. And inside you have this very technical looking helm station that it just gives you the spaceship, the spaceship feel. And after the spaceship shift, I go to bed and sleep for another four to six hours because I just had four hours of sleep, four hours of watch, and four hours of sleep again. And with this, day one ends.